Good morning. My name is Christian Zecker, and I serve as an anchor here at OCC, and I am on the students' team. If you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We are going to be in 1 Thessalonians this morning. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1-6. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Thanksgiving for the Thessalonians' faith. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. All right, well, thanks be to God for the beauty and the power of his word. Happy New Year. All right, man. How's everybody doing? Yeah, love it. Duval, come on, Dave. I thought we'd be definitely get some Duval up in here. Man, I tell you what, it's crazy. I mean, we've just been, you know, wandering around. As, if you're a Jaguars fan, who's, let's, if you're Jaguars, give me a Duval. Duval. All right, so um, it's amazing to, to be playing for something. I don't know how many times I've preached and gone home and thought, man, I'm gonna watch the Jags, it's gonna be great. And by like five minutes in, I'm like, I'm, I'm just gonna go take a nap. Um, and now we're like, what's going on? It's like, this is, this is amazing. Uh, well, if you got your Bibles, throw me to uh, 1 Thessalonians. We're gonna start right in chapter one. Um, and man, I tell you what, we had an amazing uh, gathering Christmas Eve. Uh, if you were there, um, I, I won't say that I'm uh, the biggest doubter in the world, but when I heard that we were gonna be in the 30s at the start time, I thought, are we supposed to do this, Jesus? Is this the right thing to do? Um, and then so many of y'all showed up, so many of y'all invited people, um, and you are what makes it amazing. So I just wanna say thank you. Um, when we started the gathering at 5.30, it was 36 degrees, but it was the warmest gathering um, outdoors that I've ever been to, um, and that's because of you. I loved it, it was fantastic. If you weren't there and you were with family, um, just you know, enjoy the FOMO, because it was awesome. We had a really good time. Um, but, you know, I love this idea. We're, we're in this series in First and Second Thessalonians, and somebody's probably going to ask, you know, what's the series title name? What are we in? Well, we're just in First and Second Thessalonians. I mean, we have some themes that we'll look at in First and Second Thessalonians, but for us to open up the Bible and allow God to just speak. Um, our teaching rhythms here, we do our Come and Listen series, which is the entire narrative arc of Scripture. We started in 2014 and we've worked somewhere into the middle of the Bible. I mean, we've just kind of methodically worked through it to look and see that the entire story, the entire narrative arc of scripture leads to one event, leads to one name, and his name is Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, but we also have series here. You know, we had our Advent series. We've had the Ocean of Grace series. We've had an Anchor series. Uh, we've done many different things that are visionary as far as the church is concerned, but we're always in the word of God. But we think it's very helpful for us to jump in and just say, we're gonna cover for a long season uh, here in, uh, in a new year to open up the word of God and say, God, we wanna make sure that we're always coming to you authoritatively, listening to what you have to say, rather than allowing 
you know, our experience, the world around us, the things that we think to enter in first. To say, okay, here's how I feel. Here's, here's the kind of culture I wanna create for my family and for my life. Does this word fit with that? And let me see if I can make it work and fit, or do I wanna just say, God, you speak to me. You be the filter for my life, for my marriage, for the way that I engage in college or high school or middle school or my workplace. I want you to be the one that shows me how to invite anyone and everyone into the unending ocean of grace. How do I be a city on the hill that shines light when I'm a broken vessel? Well, we start with the word of God, and I love that. I love that. You know, one thing, you know, in studying the Bible, um, which is my main, kind of one of my main jobs here is to study and teach. Um, I, it's, you know, over the years, I, what I've realized, this, this might sound stupid, um, but it's the simplicity that the more I read it, the more I realize that God is always God and that people are always people. So no matter, no matter where we land in scripture, it's always relevant. Like, I've, I used to have that feel, that burden, like, I've got to figure out ways to make the scripture relevant to the people. Well, all these people that we're reading about were real people, and they share 99.9% .9 of our DNA, which means they think like you do, means they, they did things like you did, they, they sinned like you did, they, they, you know, came from the same sinful line from Adam. I mean, we, we all share that together. So as we read these, one of the most interesting things as we read the Bible together, God gave us this and said, here's how people have engaged with me over the centuries, over the millennia. And I'm breathing this onto pages so that you can live your life, so you can filter your life. It's not just so we can be people that walk out and go, man, I know the Bible better than I did last week. No, it's so that our lives literally change by the power of the Holy Spirit coming off of these God-breathed pages. So I, I do love scripture for that. And one of the things that we'll see is we look at 1 Thessalonians and we see what Paul's trying to breathe into them and trying to speak to them because he loved them and he wanted them as a new church to be able to navigate through the in the culture uh, that they were in. And one of the things that really comes to the surface is fear and worry, like where they were and being under duress, like being in a, in a place of persecution, being in a place where uh, they were under attack just and dealing with just the everyday problems of relationships and life. People worry, and I realize that is, one, that is a universal thing. Worry and fear, when we come in, as we come into 2023, it is so universal. Across this entire room, none of us could say, well, I've, I've, I never fear or worry. Now, some of us probably at some seasons in our life would say we're blessed. Of, there's people that are, you know, classic worriers, and then the people that are like, man, we're going to be all right. Um, and I, I used to be, I think, one of those people that was like, man, we're going to be all right. Why can't everybody just be all right, why are you worried? It's gonna be fine. You know, you get up in the morning, I'm a glass half full kind of guy, pretty positive. Grew up in a family of positive people. I think I see my mom right there in the back, one of the most positive people on the planet. But you, things happen and mark your life where you begin to worry. Well, I had two of them in my life that, that kind of turned me into a little bit more of a worrier. Um, and God kind of exposed that that was actually hidden down in places that I didn't know existed. But when the right situation and circumstance came along, I started to worry. Now having kids was, the first one. Like you start, it changes the way that you, if you haven't had kids, you'll get this from the perspective of maybe um, growing up in a hostel with your parents and wondering why they lost their mind. Um, but, you know, when my kids got, when we, well, early on, you and I just had this conversation with somebody who is uh, gonna have a baby uh, here soon, really good friend of mine, and he's, he wasn't a worrier, and all of a sudden he's like, man, they do all these tests, and they tell you, is your baby gonna have this, is gonna have this, and we, you, before the baby even comes out, you're gonna find out if it's got a problem, and I'm worried, and we got this thing, it's coming on Tuesday, we don't find out until then, and, and then they called, and they said, well, we're not gonna have the, the results from the test until Friday, and he goes, I can't even sleep at night, and I'm like, 
enjoy it. It's going to be going on for the rest of your life. And then they become teenagers, and well, you know, you and now we get tortured because the iPhone allows you to track your kids if you're evil like I am, um, and you put them on your, you know, you find my iPhone or Life360, and you can, I can see everywhere they are all the time, and it's like they're, you know, when they're ninth grade, tenth grade, they start driving, all of a sudden it's just you and your spouse just watching the blue dot, you know, you're like, bing, 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 there they are, they're going exactly where they said they were going to go, and you're like really happy about it, or where are they going? What's happening? Why are they leaving there? They're going, wait, wait, wait they're, not, they're not home, but they're there, they're, they're going over there, wait, the blue dot disappeared, baby, blue dot disappeared, and you get on the phone, and you're just like, your heart pounds out of your chest. It, it just changes, the kids in here are just like, oh. This is my life. But sometimes that blue dot gives you a false sense that they're okay. Like they're like five blocks away. And you're like, they're just right down the road. And there is absolute idiocracy happening five blocks away. But when I, when I think about worry, I think all of us understand that those seasons of life, but the things that come towards us. You know, back in, in 1939, anybody ever seen there? There's a poster I want to show you. Um, the keep calm, carry on. You remember the sweatshirts back in, in the 2000s? Do you remember that? Everybody just kind of, that was kind of a thing. Maybe you didn't get into it, but it was a, it was a thing. I never knew really where it, where it came from. Um, it kind of resurfaced in the 2000s and really kind of came on strong in the 2008. Um, but this, this poster actually came from uh, 1939 when on, on the precipice of World War II when England knew that it was gonna end up on their soil. They were pretty confident that the war was gonna really affect uh, central London. It was gonna affect all of England. They had these campaigns, the, the Ministry of Communication, and Keep Calm, Carry On was, was one of them. And it, the, the whole idea behind it was that there would be steadfastness in the face of adversity. And then they put the, the Tudor crown on the poster to basically say, hey, you've got a king, you've got a sovereign authority, you've got a government that is behind you. And there was a, a sense of pride uh, for English people, and there still is today when it comes to the crown, when it comes to the Tudor crown, when it comes to the idea. I mean, they have a constitutional monarchy, so sovereignty, Aaron Walsh, I know you would argue that they're not really sovereign in that way, but they, they would say that that, that is their, when, a, when a king is, you know, comes into power, they're a sovereign king. And with the idea that you have a sovereign authority, you have a sovereign king, and therefore, that is the basis for which you could keep, keep calm and carry on. And my question is, and in, in in this is in the face of a war. They wanted them in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the war, could you keep calm and carry on? And when I was reading these passages with the Apostle Paul and I was thinking about us as people, we have all kinds of things that are coming against us. One, you have an enemy. There's a real and, and true enemy that is coming to take you off of your game. And his main objective, the, the way that he does it is not in the obvious way. He takes the very individual, big and small things in our lives, and he wants us to fear and worry because he knows that the sinful pieces of our flesh are, have a self-preservation mentality, and immediately we are going to do whatever it is to change it. So when stress comes, when we have financial pressure, we're going to, we're going to when, when, the, when the pressure cooker comes down on us, we're going to medicate we're going to try to figure out, we're not going to keep calm. We're gonna to try to control our circumstances. We're going to try to medicate the way that we feel if we're stress, stressed or depressed. I mean, just think about the financial stress. Now, I don't mean to get all into the you know, socioeconomic status of the United States of America, but have y'all been to Publix lately? I mean, come on, man. 
And I know all the smart people are like, why do you shop at Publix? Well, it smells like bread and it's fantastic. When you go in there, everybody treats you nice and smiles. Uh, and I can't help it, I'm addicted to Publix. But uh, uh, cooking oil, you know how much cooking oil is? To go in, it's too much, exactly, $7, seven bucks. Do you remember when it was like two? I mean, not that long ago. I mean, what's, I mean, and I think you start in small places like that and you start to think, where is this going? Where is this gonna, gonna end up? How, what are we gonna, you know, but again, the enemy's primary mode with attacks on, on our finances, on our culture, I mean, the world that we live in, the, the, the idea of a Christian worldview and that if you're not a part of church and that's, that's a, an odd term, it's just this idea that this, the way that we operate with a certain sense and basis of morality, it's not conservative politics, it's a, this is, I'm talking about a Bible, this is a Jesus thing, that we would filter our lives through something different that represents God and represents morality. That, that, the sense of that is definitely drifting somewhere in our world. It has definitely gone somewhere in our world. So in that sense, there's a war. And in that sense, there's something coming. How, how are we going to keep calm and carry on in the face of adversity, in the face of financial stress? Or maybe you're walking through personal things that are coming against you and you're in your own war, your own battle, and your own fight. I remember years and years ago, the, the, the pressure of, of an undiagnosed neurological disorder was the thing that probably sent me down the spiral uh, into the darkest place of worry and anxiety and fear. And the enemy will leverage that to take you out, to make sure that you don't carry the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth because you will be so self-absorbed, you will be so focused on you. Self-preservation begins to win. But how is it that that can change? you know, outside of circumstances, transcending circumstances. How, how do we change that? How can we, in the midst of a war coming or being in the middle of a war, can, how can we keep calm and carry on? Well, I love when we dig into this passage that the Apostle Paul is talking to a group of people about just that. The same things that we go through, the same things that we are battling. So if you got your Bible, 1 Thessalonians starting in chapter one, and we're gonna dig in, this is, we're gonna study the Bible together. Right off the bat, it says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. Now, that's just an intro, but we're going to stop right there because we want to get some context. Like, who are these people? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Many of us probably know who the Apostle Paul is. The Apostle Paul was a really smart guy, really religious guy, really um, hate, didn't really like the movement of Christianity. He was a Pharisee who wanted to shut down the movement. He was... You know, you know, loved God, but his, he didn't believe in Jesus. And then, and then all of that got turned on his head. He, was, I mean, he, was, he would murder Christians. He would have them killed. And then cha everything changed. That God, he met Jesus on the road, road to Damascus, and his, his life changed. He became the, the guy that ends up carrying the name of Jesus all over Europe, all over Asia. I mean, he, he was incredible. And then you've got people that worked with him. Silas was one of them. Timothy was the young uh, church planter that Paul was breathing life into and was mentoring along the way and discipling along the way. And they're on a missionary journey together. Now, I wanna kind of get us into this. And I, I think context is very important. So if you go back and you read Acts chapter 17, you realize you know, exactly where this church at Thessalonica came from. 
the Apostle Paul went on a missionary journey. This was his second missionary journey. I want to show you this map. You can find these at understandingchristianity.com. These come from Logos. I wanted to have the interactive piece of this kind of put together. And you can kind of follow. Let me, I'm going to jump down here just because I can see better. I didn't put the maps in my notes. So if you look on the second missionary journey, it numbered 13. It's over this corner right, right around where Syria is. That's where the, Paul's second missionary journey begins. And then he begins to cruise on up and you see the, the, the pathway in which he goes and he heads all the way around to right around. If you scoot up to the next page, here we go. We get up here. So he's down here, he cruises up, we're at 13. He's all the way, all the way up here. And then he lands Thessalonica up there, number 19. Now, if you're on this website, which is really cool, it's produced by Logo Software. You, every time you roll over one of those numbers, it gives you a, pat, a little piece of scripture and it gives you some context of where they are and what's happening. Like what happened when, you know, Paul got beat up, you know, when he went to, you know, when you're rolling over number three, you know, right here in, in Sicily, he's, he's getting beat up. I mean, it'll tell you all the information and you'll kind of see exactly what's happening and to know when it, when it is. The second missionary journey started in uh, 49 AD. So he's kind of in the first missionary journey was around 45. So if, for about four, four years, he kind of looped around, did his own thing. Would always come back and, and launch from Antioch. You would think he would launch from Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was where, like Jesus said, look, well, you're gonna carry the, the gospel everywhere. Jerusalem, you know, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But they didn't quite understand that. And then the church blew up at Antioch. If you read the book of Acts, you'll see what happened. All of a sudden, Jesus just spread all over this church at Antioch and the people that were back in Jerusalem were kind of flipping out. Like, what in the world is going on? All these Gentiles, all these naughty people are learning about Jesus. Is this the way it's supposed to go? And then they go back and they remember, oh yeah, Jesus said this was gonna happen. Oh yeah, the Old Testament prophet said this was gonna happen. That it wasn't just gonna be us as the Jews. It was gonna spread to the Gentiles and to the entire earth. So the apostle Paul was the one that was like gonna carry the gospel. Peter was the rock kind of in Jerusalem, kind of settling down and, and saying, hey, we're, this is kind of home base for us as the Jews. And he was, the gospel was spreading to the Jews like crazy in and around Jerusalem and Samaria. But then you get to Antioch and then, then it just explodes all over the Greco-Roman empire, which you just saw. I mean, which is pretty incredible. What's interesting, if you, and another thing I like to do when I'm studying the Bible and I'm getting context right at the beginning, pull up just a, a, a modern map. Now you can see all the places that we just were. And you can kind of overlay, you can see where Syria is. And if you, if you, if you think about it, you can kind of, kind of trace his steps where he went, had to go over land and then it ends up, you see these, I'll show you right here. I'm getting all geeky, aren't I? Where are the three little fingers in Cyprus? So in, in this, once you get out of, Syria, and you roll around the corner, these in here somewhere is where you're going to get into Thessalonica. But you get here, and if you, if you walk, pull up the next map. I did this just because I had to see. Oh, there you go, right up there. Um, the Apostle Paul went about the same way that Google went, which is what I thought was pretty incredible. I was like, did, you know, who's smarter? I mean, the Apostle Paul had none of those tools, and he traveled... It, almost exactly the same road. I just looked at both. I kept going back and forth and going, what is going on here? This is pretty amazing. So I don't know if Timothy was his navigator. Turn left. You know, I don't know how that went down, but I thought it was really cool. But anyway, when you do this, now the reason I like this, and we're gonna go over some of this stuff on Tuesday um, when we go dive into the Old Testament with our launch of City Group. So if you're into this kind of stuff, I'm gonna get really geeky on Tuesday. Um, but it brings it to life. These are real people just like you. They walked on planet Earth in real places that Google has mapped. 
So when we look at it, you gotta understand scripture. These can't, they, they, they need to land in your heart that they're not fairy tales. These are things that people did. The miracles that we see that happened in scripture, the, the sacrifices that people made, they are real. And so when we get some context, we understand what's happening. They, they, they end up in Thessalonica. Um, they, Paul stays there for three Saturdays, or three church days is what I like to say. It was three Sabbaths. He preached uh, in the synagogue. Tons of people got saved. Um, Greeks, um, just Gentiles in general, Jews. It was just across the map. There was tons of people, and the church was born very, very quickly in Thessalonica. And so you've got this amazing church, and then, of course, they have to leave because some people got mad. Some of the, the Gentiles got mad that were there because they're like, you know, you're telling us that this is how to live our lives. And some of the Jews got mad because they didn't really like the idea of Jesus. They, they, their Judaism was so important to them. So, you know, they get drug around. The, the, even the guy that they were staying at his house got drug out of his, drug out of his house. His name was Jason. And I, always, I love when there's names like Jason in the Bible because they're a little more normal. Like, we've got Jasons here. Jason Venn, he's right in here somewhere. Um, Jason, you know, he's in the Bible. He's right there. There's Jason. He got drug out of his house and he got beat because he let people stay there. And you've got all these things that happen, right? So you've got Paul. You've got, some of your uh, Bibles say Silvanus, but we almost 99% are positive that Silvanus is the same person as Silas just because it would be kind of impossible because the journey starts with Silas and that name kind of translates down to the, to, to, the, to the name Silas. So you've got Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They are the founders. And that's why you see them at the top there. They're, they're the founders of the church at Thessalonica. So you're starting to get some, some context. But when we look and start thinking about the, the intent, the apostle Paul wrote the letter about, I mean, it can't be based on what you, what we, how we see the journeys kind of take place and where he was in Thessalonica. He ends up in Corinth it can't be, it's gotta be within the year to 18 month range that he wrote this letter. So it's 51 AD, maybe 52 AD at the most is when um, 1 Thessalonians was written. So getting that context, and you're gonna see exactly why this is important as we dig in. So you jump into, into verse two. Now in your mind, you've got a visual picture of where these people were going and where they were traveling. You can go Google it when you get home, it's kind of fun. And we, we, we jump into verse two, it says, we always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith. Now listen to these words. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. The Apostle Paul is using those terms specifically to inform your theology and the way that you think about God, and I'll show you how. So you've got work produced by faith, labor prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a movement there that, because you, you, would, you would read that and say, well, we need to, as people, just like the Thessalonians have faith, we need to work. We need to make sure that we're working to invite more people to experience who Jesus is. We need to have endurance. But if you, if you see how the Apostle Paul is saying this, saying your, your, your faith is, it's being, your, or the work is being produced by faith that comes from God. Your labor is prompted by love that comes from God. Your endurance is inspired by hope that comes in and through our Lord Jesus Christ. So look at the movements. It, it comes in the passage this way, but this is what he's saying. Your faith is the thing that drives the work. The love that you received in Jesus, the love, approval, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Knowing and understanding that love is the inspiration, is the movement. Just 2 Corinthians says that. Christ's love, what? It compels us. So his love, it's the thing that, uh, that allows us to labor. 
and, and inspires us so that it's not work like we're working because we have to. We work because there's, there's an engine of love in and through the gospel and hope in and through Jesus Christ. Our future hope and our hope of being with him is the thing that produces endurance. Do you see how that works? That's moving in a gospel direction, which is the way this is written in scripture. Many times we miss that. We miss that everything, the engine is driven by the torrent of grace that we've been given. We've been given a gift so that we don't work out of self-trying because we think that'll be the best thing to do or work to make ourselves look good. We work because we're exploding and full of the grace of Jesus. We're like, it's, it's our, our thankfulness, our heart of, of gratitude that explodes from that experience of understanding that Jesus died on the cross for our sin, that he chose us, that he picked us, okay? That's just, a, that's just that's, that could be a whole nother sermon, but as we go through and we're going through scripture, we don't wanna skip any of this good stuff. We get into verse four, it says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Now here can be a, a stumbling block for people too when you use the words chosen or election or picked, which are all in the translation of chosen that's right here, that he chose you. In Ephesians, it would be a little more direct when the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, he says, you were chosen, you were predestined before the foundation of the world. I mean, that is one of those things that, that kind of scrambles the brain. And I'm not gonna get into, I'm not gonna get, a side, get on a side road. We can talk about it, you know, you know, for weeks and weeks and weeks when we talk about predestination and election. But you read, if you read second, uh, Ephesians chapter two, which is a, is a reference, and I always, if you're in your Bible, just take a little note, put Ephesians 2, Ephesians 1, because that's where you're gonna see, you know, he has chosen you to be adopted into his family. He's picked you, predestined you for holiness before the foundation of the world, in and through Jesus. It's a pretty incredible thing. But, but let's, let's just kind of step out of the, the questions that we have about how did he pick me before the foundation of everything? Well, let's, let, let's get the best picture that we can get. I think sometimes when we think about our salvation, when we think about Jesus being the one that saves and nothing else does, we have this, this picture. And I've used this illustration. If, you've, if you're around Ocean City Church, you'll probably use it at some point too. But imagine Jesus is in a helicopter and he's, he's, he's swarming over a huge body of water in which you're drowning in. And you need help. You are, you are in need of salvation. You are drowning in your sins. You are dying in your sins. Now listen to that, 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 that word. You're dying in your sins. And you're just above water. You're treading. You're trying to stay up. You got your hand up. Jesus, come get me. And you're, 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 you're making it, but you're not making it. You know you're in, in peril of going down. And Jesus throws the, the life preserver to you. You jump on the life preserver and they play the good music and then you go up in Jesus, the helicopter goes off and everything's good and you're safe. That is horrible theology. But we, we often feel that way. Like I'm, I'm reaching up and Jesus saved me. That's how he did, he brought me in. No, this is, this is what scripture says, that you weren't dying in your sins, you were dead in your sins. You were spiritually dead in your sins. That's what, it, you, can, you can go read Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. That's in, in God's love and mercy, he came. So Jesus is in a helicopter, right? It's a different way to think about it. Jesus is in a helicopter. You have sunk to the bottom and you have inhaled water and you have died. You are dead in your sins at the bottom of the ocean. And guess what Jesus does? He jumps out of the helicopter anyway. And he swims to the bottom of the ocean, risks his life, does everything he can, drags you up on the shore and boom, hits you in the chest. Precardial thump, right? Right? 
you gotta hit it. Dave knows all this stuff. It's like, brings the heart back to life, you know, you know, mouth to mouth, just making sure we're breathing, puts breath in our lungs. Just saying that, right? Back to life spiritually. You were dead in your sins and now you're alive. We often think, we were in trouble, we were pretty bad people, and now we're a little bit better people because we go to church. No, you were dead in your sins, and now you are alive. That is a resurrection. We were resurrected with Christ. It's a language we see all over Scripture. So he's saying right here, you were chosen. God has chosen you. So for, we're answering the question, how do we keep calm and carry on in the face of adversity or war or a health issue or stress, anxiety, Wondering what the future's like in the world, the, 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 the impending doom of thinking about what's gonna happen to our Christian worldview. How do we keep calm and carry on? Because that will be a beautiful city on a hill for the world to see and go, how in the world are they so calm? How are they carrying on in the face of adversity? Well, they're, they're a chosen people. They have been picked, they have been resurrected, they have been selected by Jesus. So the first one right here, if we're looking at points and you're a note taker, we are chosen. Paul's making sure that we understand, all of us, God is making sure that we all understand the implications of what it means to be chosen. All of us wanna be picked. All of us wanna be chosen. It's the way God has wired us. We were built with the need for, to feel important, to feel valued, to feel loved, to feel unconditionally loved and picked. Now, the thing I love about this example and, and the way the, the Apostle Paul lays it out so many different times in scripture, so we love to be picked. I mean, the moment that I realized that there was a mutual, you know, thing with, with my future wife, I mean, that was the best feeling in the world. She picked me. I was very happy that she picked me. Like, there's something about that, being selected, being picked. I mean, it's just, you know, gr you know growing up, playing sports, and, you, you know, you split up teams in the yard, you got all these, you got six guys over here, six guys over here, and, you know, here's team captain, he's a little bit older, he's gonna pick all the people, and you're just sitting there, chest out, you know, trying to make sure you get picked and all of a sudden, ding, you get picked and you're like, yes, I am. And it's one of the best things in the world. We all have this built in. God wired you with it. It's not a bad thing. It's not a sinful thing to want to be picked. But, but what God, the way that he created you and the reason that he put that in you is that so you would understand as he picks you, as he chose you in him before the foundation of the world, that that would trump all other picking, that that would trump all other choosing. Because the problem that exists and where the stress begins is we put the burden of ch being chosen and being picked on other people, on relationships, on other things. I mean, if you do that with your spouse, if, if you get married and you say, look, you picked me, you chose me, that's a great thing. Now, for, from this day forward, you need to pick me. You need to make sure that I always feel picked and chosen in your life. Otherwise, I'm going to crumble, right? That is a burden that no other human was, was ever meant to bear. I mean, that is a, that, ask my wife if she feels picked every day. I mean, if that was, if she, I mean, I want to, I pick you, you're mine, I love you. But if, if I mean, let's just get real. To, to bear the burden of making sure that someone feels chosen and picked and selected minute by minute. I, as a human being, was not created for that capacity. God was the chooser. He was the only one with the capacity to unconditionally love the world, to love us individually so that we could actually experience something that would set us free from needing people so that we could serve people. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you wanna be free? You wanna be able to keep calm and carry on and not feel insecure? Guess what? You have been chosen 
in him before the foundation of the world. You have been chosen. And the implications of that are huge. They're huge. And we need it. We're, we're, we're lost without it. We're broken without it. And some of us have experienced that. I remember several years ago, I was, it, it was middle school, high school range. I had a friend of mine, uh, his parents were divorced, living with his mom. Um, and his dad, his, his biological dad, um, had been married multiple times, was the, one of the funniest humans on planet Earth, but he was, a, you know, for all better purposes, he was a dirtbag. And um, but he's sitting there and just all faith and trust that his dad's, it's weekend time, dad's supposed to come pick him up, take him to a baseball game, do some fun stuff with him, then bring him back after the weekend. And I remember sitting that there with him, you know, and his dad was supposed to go, his dad just never came. And he just sat there minute after minute making excuses for his dad and going, he's, you know, he's, every once in a while he gets stuck at work and, and, and 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, 20 minutes go by, an hour goes by and I'm sitting there with him. And I, I mean, the capacity for me at, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old was, was limited, you know, you know, frontal lobe's not even developed yet, but I'm feeling the hurt for him and the brokenness for him because the person that's supposed to pick you and supposed to choose you every time, your dad letting him down and crushing his soul. And I could feel it sitting next to him. It's so hard, it's so hard. But the beauty of who we are, if you're not a follower of Jesus and you're wondering, this is not a religion that we're all jumping in this pool and going, hey, we've got this cool club, Ocean City Church, where we're all Christians, we read the Bible together. No, this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian is that you, you are understanding now that there's a God, the real famous one, the, the real creator of the universe that loves you and wanted you here today. And as followers of Jesus, we are picked, we are chosen by God and it is powerful. It becomes the engine for how we, why we do what we do. It's the engine of what, how and why I became a pastor of a church. Amazing. So number one, we're chosen. Here comes number two, let's look at verse five. Because of our, this gospel, he's telling them, it came to you not simply with words, not simply by just reading something or somebody reciting something, but it came also with power, the power of the Holy Spirit, this deep conviction. So when you, when you realize that Jesus has picked you, when you've been adopted into this family, which is what has happened if you're a follower of Jesus, then comes a deep conviction, which doesn't sound like a really good thing, but it's the most amazing thing because it's where freedom's found. All of a sudden, the things that you didn't really care about, the sin that you, was attached to your life, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, that's not a big deal. It's the way the world operates. All of a sudden, you become a part of, of this family of God. You realize, I have been picked. I, I, am, I belong to something that I didn't belong to. My, all the approval that I've always needed from the rest of the world has been satisfied in Jesus. When that happens, all of a sudden, deep conviction comes. And you realize, all this, these things that I have been doing to medicate this life that I have, to medicate my insecurities, I don't need them anymore. In fact, I feel convicted about them. I feel like, man, I gotta get rid of these things. I'm, I'm now an image bearer in the family of God. I'm now, I'm now a part of something. And not out of, out, of, out of guilt, not out of shame, because Jesus took those things to the cross and he buried them, but out of deep conviction that the Apostle Paul's talking about. All of a sudden, we can look at our lives, we can look at sexual sin, we can look at medicating with drugs and alcohol. We can look at so many different things in our life and say, you know what? This isn't about earning my salvation because I and my salvation is set. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid it all. 
but I have a deep conviction to set these things to the side because I'm done self-preserving and, and, and trying to live life, protecting me, controlling all my circumstances. I want to lift my eyes to the world that needs what I've received. And the only way that that happens is all of a sudden you begin to shed the sin, the shackles. What Hebrews says, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna drop some of this stuff so we can run the race faster. And deep conviction comes. Deep conviction comes. You know, for us, what we want, what we want for our kids is not a bunch of rules. They're just going to, they'll obey them. You know, you can get your kids to obey rules. But as soon as they leave your house, guess what they're going to do? They're going to take off and they're going to do what they want to do. But if they have a Holy Spirit, because he says, look, not just with words, but with a, a spirit-driven power, there's a Holy Spirit deep conviction. I want my kids to have a deep conviction. That only comes through Jesus. It comes through an experience by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if they have a deep conviction, then I'm not sitting there with five pages of rules on how to live their life. In other, in other words, the Holy Spirit's gonna begin to lead their life. They're gonna know. As soon as they pull up to that house and the bass is thumping, boom, boom, the red solo cups are flying. They're going to go, ding, because the Holy Spirit's telling them, I know I shouldn't be here. I know I shouldn't walk in there. This is not where I belong. These are not my people. That's what we want for our kids, for, for husbands and wives. It's what you want for, ladies, it's what you want for your husband. You do not want a rule set of, you know, here's the thing. You know, if you do this, you go to this place, you, you look at that woman, you do these things, you go here. All the, the rules, they don't work deep conviction, if you're wondering, if you're wondering what's going to change him, because I think that's, that's one of those things that we, we think about, like how do we change our spouse? I, wanna, he, I am going to change him. We got married, and he doesn't know, but I know exactly how to make him awesome, and I'm going to come in, and I'm going to change him. No, he needs deep conviction, and the freedom in that for you as a, as a wife or as a, as a husband when you're, when you're married is that it, it's not up to you. Your con the, the, the best thing that we can do is pray for our spouse and lead them to Jesus. That's it. Dropping guilt on them, that's not gonna work. Now, we're gonna have conversations about, hey, you shouldn't have done that. I'm like, yeah, probably shouldn't have done that. I'm sorry. You're gonna have those. But deep conviction is what they need. It's exactly what they need. Lastly, the Apostle Paul loved this. As we continue in verse five, it says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. Now, this, you could easily pass this. The Apostle Paul's talking about him. He's talking about Silas and he's talking about Timothy. He's like, you know how we, we lived among you? Now, if you didn't know, if you just read this passage without any context, how would you know how they lived? You wouldn't know. But this is what's cool about the, like technology and what we can do now. So if you've got Bible Gateway, the, the Bible app, you got cross-references and this is how you kind of study. So if you pull it up, I'll show you. Look, this is, gonna, this is how you know. So if you're reading this and you dive in, right at the very top, you see that little hyperlink where you can click on it where you'll get a cross-reference. It tells you, well, where did, where did this church at Thessalonica come from? Where are these, who are these Thessalonians? Well, go read Acts chapter 17, right there, 17.1. It says, Paul and his companions, which we know who they are now, they passed through these particular areas and they came to Thessalonica. And then you can go and you can jump over there. You can read the whole story. And in Thessalonica, like I said, Paul went there, preached for three weeks and every Sabbath would go in there. But what you find out is that they, they, they were under it. The persecution, they were getting in trouble. They were having to run. They had to, they had to help the guy that was housing them while they were there run away because they sent Timothy ahead. They're like, dude, you are small and young and probably a teenager. You go on to Berea and we're going to take care of the man business. And they, they, they were under it. And so when it says this, if you didn't read that, it says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. You would know. 
But okay, study the Bible. Let's get some crossroads. Let's know how they lived. How did they live? These guys lived fearlessly. That's what the apostle Paul's trying to tell them. Like, you know how we lived. We didn't run from the fight. We stayed in it. We preached the gospel of love right there. We knew it was the right thing to do. We lived fearlessly. So now we've got some context. Jump into verse six. It says, you became imitators of us. You became fearless. So he's trying to let them know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab something that you're doing right and I'm gonna highlight it because it's the thing that, that is possible for you as a follower of Jesus. It says, you became imitators of us. You were fearless and of the Lord. You welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And that leads me to number three. How do, we, how, are we, how do we keep calm and carry on in the face of adversity? We are no longer slaves to fear. Romans 8 is very specific. The Apostle Paul's speaking to the church at Rome. He says, the Holy Spirit has not given you a spirit of fear. It's not given you, that, that, has been, that has been removed. You've got a spirit of victory. You've got a, a different spirit that's at work for you. It has changed. You, you are no longer a slave to fear. In the midst of severe suffering, with joy you can, you can have in the middle of difficult circumstances. And I think of it this way, because I think for us, when we're worried about us, and, and we're self-preserving, and we're not calm, and the enemy's got us kind of in freak-out mode, I think about this as an illustration. It's, it's like, and I've done this, and people in here that are germaphobes, I know you've done it too. Like when you have a, a family and you hear they got, like they got the stuff, you know, they got, we heard Teddy's got the stomach thing and he's, they, I think it's swept over the whole house. We all got the flu and the Clampets got the flu and people know, oh, don't go to the Clampets, man. I'm using the Clampets because I'm, I'm pretty sure there's no Clampets in here. If there is, I apologize. The Clampets got the flu and you just like, we're not, baby. We ain't going to the Clampets. Clampets got that stuff. We ain't gonna be there. I can't be sick. I can't afford to be sick out of work next week. No Clampets for us. We just can keep the Clampets over there. We're gonna keep all that Clampet juice somewhere else, right? We're not gonna be around the Clampets. You see what I'm saying? Whereas if we're, if we're not self-preserving, if, if, if all of a sudden, for whatever reason, we've got this ironclad thing, we will never get the flu. We're just not gonna get sick. We don't have to worry about us. What are we gonna do? We're gonna help the Clampets. Like, man, I'm fearless. I can go in there, we're gonna bring soup, we're gonna bring stuff to the Clampets. We want the Clampets to feel better. Part of our family, we love them. They go to, the, they go to OCC, the Clampets do. And we, we love them and we can dive right in. You see, for us, I think sometimes we look at the world around us, we look at all of the, the impending doom of what, where we are in our culture. And we're like, oh man, I gotta, we, we, we gotta be careful. We gotta, we gotta put up the walls, we gotta make sure we do this, we gotta do this. Don't, let, don't get none of that stuff on you from the world. We don't wanna get any of that, mm, you know, what are we gonna do? We got all these gender issues. Oh, don't get some gender issues on you. And we get, we step in a place where all of a sudden the enemies rendered us helpless in the culture and the world that we live in. And God has built us strong. He says, I've, I've chosen you, I've given you deep conviction so you won't sacrifice or compromise. You can dive headlong into the world. Jesus says, look, I'm not, don't take them out of the world. Just keep, keep them, protect them from the evil one. We're supposed to be in it, to win it. That's how we're supposed to live. Not going, ooh, I can't get none of that on me. We gotta be in it. We wanna see this, this community change. We wanna see this whole, the, everything around us, our workplaces, our families, that we have to believe, we have to be certain, our confidence, a, a Insecure church is detrimental for the world because if we are insecure and we are self-medicating and self-preserving, we will not be carrying the light of Jesus to anyone. We will just be keeping it, the, the stuff off, the sin off us. You know, years ago when we were about to get into this building 
and we didn't, didn't know, and I didn't even think we were gonna. I had to stand before the planning commission, at, uh, and many of you were there in the room, and we packed it out. There was kids running down the hall. Those people thought we were crazy. Just, there was tons of people at City Hall. It was beautiful. But we had heard it was all no votes gonna happen, and so we went in, and I just, for whatever reason, just started talking about Jesus, and I started talking about Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon in the 1850s, Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, if you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, probably the, if not the greatest preacher, one of the greatest preachers of all time, definitely the one that has planted the first megachurch. I mean, he moved into central London and did things that nobody did. Now, you're in the Industrial Revolution in the 1850s and explosive growth in central London. I mean, crazy stuff is going on, but with explosive growth, it's just like any urban center, even today, you've got health issues, you've got homeless issues, you've got job issues, you've just got a diversity of things that, that can make the inner city an ugly place with high crime when people are homeless and there was a health crisis, there was a flu crisis, there was so many things that were going on. And so the, the churches that were in and around London, the churches that were in and around that area, you know what they did? They said, we're out of here. They hit the eject button and went out into the countryside and just said, we will, we will get into the suburbs. We will put a cute country church over here and a cute country church over here. We are getting out of central London. All of them but one, Charles Spurgeon, Metropolitan Tabernacle. He said, we're staying. Not only are we staying, we're gonna allow the gospel and what it's doing in our hearts to change central London. We are gonna build hospitals. We are going to feed the homeless. We are going to... Uh, help the sick and medicate the sick. We're gonna create job banks. We're gonna do, and they just went off Metropolitan Tabernacle. And every week, Charles Spurgeon would preach 20 minute sermons. I wish I could do that, but I can't. He would preach 20 minute sermons and everybody would get saved. It was 10,000 people in his church or 5,000 people every, every week. He had to tell the people that were Christians, can you stop coming to church so we can make room for the other people around here? Just come every other week or come once a month. Just stop coming here, you're saved. Go out there and save other people. We gotta save more people. So he'd bring more people and the church just exploded. And then years later, as the, I mean, it's just incredible to read about what Charles Spurgeon did. Years later, a guy was coming before parliament and there was you know, some sticky issue with Metropolitan Tabernacle. And this guy stood up in parliament and he addressed the prime minister of England and said, I wanna let you know that if we do, if, we, if, if Metropolitan Tabernacle ever leaves central London, it will cripple our city. That's how much they carry here. That's how much they've done here. That's how much they've redeemed and revitalized central London. We need to support, we need to love, we need to wrap our arms around Metropolitan Tabernacle. So as people, that's what we wanna be. And that's what I said to the, to the city. I said, that's what we wanna be. We, we don't wanna be the one that's shouting down all the bars and the restaurants and, oh no, I got some on me. No, we wanna change the city. We want the homeless people that are surrounding this building every week to, to say something's changed because Ocean City Church is here. We want the low-income housing community that's around here to, to feel the presence of Ocean City Church and the Christ in us, the hope of glory. Everywhere we walk, everywhere we talk, everything that we do, we want them to, to know and understand the love of Jesus. But it's not gonna happen unless we know that we're chosen, that we have deep conviction, and that we're no longer slaves to fear. Let's stand. God, we love you.
we love you. How you made a promise all over the landscape of your word that you will never let us down. That, you, that we may stumble, but we will not fall and that you will uphold us with your right hand. And we believe that. We walk not with our own confidence, but with your confidence that you will always lift us up and that you will never let us down. Just come Holy Spirit, drive that into the mind and the heart of our church. In Jesus' name.